All right, good morning, guys. So, happy Sunday again. I have the, uh, the privilege, and uh, at some points this week I thought it was the burden of giving you guys this sermon today and bringing it before you. Um, and I'll explain more about that in, in a little bit, but it was an interesting week for me. So, Brooks is out preaching at Grace Point Church this week. And this is crazy. Uh, if you know anything about me, you know that I'm a procrastinator on some levels, but I was not this week. I was on my game because I knew about this like three weeks out. So my plan was I'm going to read through Psalm 12, which is where we're going to be today. So if you want to go ahead and turn there in your Bibles, I'm going to read through this every day for like two weeks ahead of time to the point that I know this and I'm ready and I'll know exactly what God is, is, uh, is trying to tell us. And uh, well... I'm, I'm sure there's like a hundred jokes about God laughing at your plans and, and such and so on and so forth. So, yeah, um, I tried to get, just get the words to pour out of my head and onto a page so that I could bring it to you guys this morning. But it was like two solid weeks of reading Psalms 12 and, and, and nothing. I, I was drawing blanks. So even though I was going to be an anti-procrastinator this time, um, it didn't work out. So uh, some stuff was happening to me and, and to my, my small little family throughout the, the past few weeks. Nothing major, but we had a lot of stuff going on, and um, it got real a few times, and so it was only after God brought me where he needed me to be that I realized this psalm is absolutely perfect, uh, especially for me. So uh, before we do anything else, so I think it's a good idea that we pray, and then I kind of want you to read through with me Psalm 12 first on your own, and, and, and take in the words for yourself and, and kind of see where it puts you. So without further ado, let's pray really quick. Father, we, we come to you again this morning, awed by your majesty, Father. We want to know more about you. We want to be closer to you, God. We're here to worship you, and so I pray that you uh, help us to focus, God. Help us to focus on you. Help us to see you more. In your name we pray. Amen. So let's start reading in Psalms 12. <clears throat> to the choir master, according to the... Shemineth, a psalm of David. Verse 1, Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone. For the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor. With flattering lips and a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts. Those who say, With our tongue we will prevail. Our lips are with us. Who is the master over us? Verse 5, because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. For the words of the Lord are pure words, like, a, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. On every side the wicked prowl as vileness is exalted among the children of man. So I'm going to be honest, the first thing that I thought when I read this is, now I know why Brooks was wanting to preach somewhere else this week. <laughs> uh, man, that was, when I, when I first read it, like I said, a couple weeks back, I, I knew I had my work cut out for me. It seemed like a really challenging uh, a passage to me because it doesn't take a, uh, a Bible scholar to realize David was not having a good day. Things weren't going his way. Uh, it seemed pretty scary. So you guys know we've been working through Psalms all summer long now, and it kind of is a trend. David is in peril. He's in trouble, and he needs, he needs some help. And so he ends up on his face, calling out to God on his knees, crying for help. Um, and this time is no different. 
This particular psalm actually is called a community lament. So it would have been used as like a public worship song, probably during times of overwhelming distress, as you can probably see. Um, But specifically for David, when this distress was caused by people who were pretty much flat out lying, especially people who were in power, people who were lying and using uh, their tongues and their, their double heart to gain ground for themselves at the expense of other people especially. Um, so you'll notice the inscription here, just as an interesting note to the choir master, according to the Sheminith. I had to look that up. It actually means eight or octave. So some translators think that it's referring to an eight-stringed instrument, but the general consensus here, especially for this psalm, is that it is like a musical indicator that tells the, the, uh, the, the singer or the singers of this song that it is to be sung an octave lower as like a low and somber tone kind of thing, which fits. It goes perfectly. Um, it's a lament, and so a low and somber tone, or key at least, would be pretty fitting. So um, it's been said before that I have a great need for my God, and I have a great God for my need. And it might have taken me a little while to realize it, but this psalm, Psalm 12, was exactly what I needed to hear, especially in the past few weeks of my life. So personally speaking, I kind of mentioned My family has been, um, we've had a few crossroads, we've had a few um, issues, it's nothing major, but there's been sickness, there's been um, uh, stress, uh, there's been a lot of work going on. Um, Oh, and we've been potty training a three-year-old who thinks she's a 20-year-old, and do that while you got a one-year-old. I'm just, I mean, you guys know Millie, so you know how that is. Um, She's trying to break everything all the time. I think the word that I'm looking for is overwhelmed, honestly. Uh, it can get really overwhelming in, in our household, and I'm kind of hoping that you guys are going to grant me the courtesy of understanding where we're coming from. We primarily are a family of, or a church of young families for the most part, and uh, if we're not, we've been there before, and we know what that's like. So I get it. I, I feel overwhelmed. Um, and when God finally brought me to that point where I realized, there's a, this is... I can't do this. I read Psalm 12, and everything was perfectly clear. Um, It it was just like a sign. Getting overwhelmed is, at least from what my life experience has told me, um, it's, it's just a part of this natural world. I know that's not super encouraging to hear, especially as a part of a worship service. It's a little bleak. I get it. But it's the truth. I mean, we have Adam and Eve to thank for that honestly, um, or if you're a man, just Eve. We'll go with that. <clears throat> it's okay. Don't tell Brooks I said that. As a teacher, I always try to like impart what little bit of you know, 28 years of wisdom that I've got um, on my students. So my kids are coming into me at 14, 15 years old, and they're leaving me somewhere around 18. And so you guys have been teenagers before. You can't really tell them anything. But for some reason, I feel like I should try And so I try to tell them what this whole adult thing is about. Because, I mean, you remember what that's like, right? Your your parents are trying to tell you about the real world and all the things that you should be doing, and you have to listen to them. But as a teenager, you don't really do that. So I'm kind of hoping when I talk to them that day that it's coming from somebody else, and so they can understand it a little bit better. So this whole adult thing, the real world, as everybody calls it, at least everybody who's living in it, I usually describe it as, so picture... You're juggling. As a teenager in high school, the average person, the average teenager, is probably juggling 
maybe two, maybe three balls. And this is pretty challenging. You've got a lot going on. You've got to study. Um, you've got a bully maybe. You've got some social pressures. So you do have stuff to deal with. But as soon as you get out of high school and you go to college, all of a sudden there's three or four more um, things that you have to juggle. And, uh, man, you hit an adult, and all of a sudden <laughs> it gets rough. It gets really rough. You get out in the real world, and you get a spouse, and you get kids. Suddenly you're trying to juggle, like, 15 tennis balls while riding a unicycle, and people are throwing tomatoes at you. I mean, it's really scary. This world is it's aggressive sometimes. And you walk out of college, and you have debt, and then you start a family, and maybe your spouse doesn't clean the house the way that you want them to, or... Uh, I'm not going to look up right now. Your kids, <laughs> maybe your kids won't take a nap or they don't sleep through the night and you've got to get up at work, you know, and go at six in the morning. Um, your parents or your grandparents are struggling with uh, maybe sickness starting to creep in, health problems, or even you yourself have health problems on top of all that. You're wondering how you're going to do work when you're sick or you've got this mortgage. I mean, you guys know where I'm going with this. There's a lot of pressure. So I think we're all on the same page. It gets really scary. And that's just, and this is where I'm going with this, that's just the secular world. That's just the, the problems of the secular world. That's not even dealing with the most important issues that we face, which is the spiritual. Like, that's not even touching your salvation, your walk with God. It's not even addressing your spouse's walk with God or your kids' walk with God. Maybe your neighbor and their complete distaste for any God, their atheism or, or, or any other religion or anything like that. Maybe that's not even considering your best friend who's backsliding off of a cliff and you don't know whether you're supposed to say something or not. Or your coworker who you, you're with almost every day tells you they're a Christian but you're just not seeing the fruit. That's overwhelming. That's the real issue. And that brings us to Psalm 12 because that's scary and that's what overwhelming can feel like. And David is feeling it, man. In Psalm 12, I mean, you felt the tone of that psalm, that lament. That's what's got him so riled up. He is completely overwhelmed by the injustice and the devastation of sin that he sees when he looks around his life and when he looks around the world and as you're going to see when he looks at himself. So his heart and his soul are crushed, man. They're, they're broken by what he sees around him. And I think that we can learn a lot from that. So there is a main idea to this passage. Um, if I were to wrap it up in one sentence, this world and its sin is destructive, but there is safety in the word of God. So this world and its sin is destructive. It is, it is just menacing, but there is complete safety in the Word of God. So I want to break this passage down incredibly simply. There's only two main points to this, and all of it with the theme of overwhelming. So without further ado, let's get started. In Psalm 12, verse 1, David says, Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone. He's crying out for help. Everyone, verse 2, utters lies to his neighbor, and with flattering lips and a double heart they speak. In other words, where are God's people? Where are those who are true to their creator? I'm looking around me, David says, and all I see is deceit and sin with no repentance and no consideration of our God who created us, who's always there for us. 
I kept thinking about how every person who's older than me always wants to tell me about how back in their day it wasn't this bad and stuff like that. And I hear that all the time. David's saying the same thing. Man, it didn't used to be this way. Like, it was better than this. What happened? God, help us. Save, oh Lord. Help us. So let me give you a little bit of context here before we go any farther about exactly what's going on. Precisely the context for David's life. Uh, as he's writing this, because you've probably remembered from our past psalms that he's had a lot of problems and it's caused him to write some of these other psalms and cry out to God. So to find this, we're not going to go through all four chapters, but you'll find this in 1 Samuel chapter 18 through 22 if you want to write that down. So let me just summarize this whole thing really briefly. So to start out with in chapter 18, for David at least, it's all good. He's killed Goliath. He's grown up. He's a young man. Uh, He's got a lot of fame. And they're returning at the start of chapter 18 from a long battle with the Philistines, which they have won and they're victorious. And so him and Saul and their entire army are riding back in uh, and they are on top of the world. But this is where we've heard this before as they're returning to Israel. The people are all out in the streets singing their praises and they're singing things like Saul has killed his thousands and David his ten thousands. Just for reference here, Saul is the king, not David. So it didn't sit too well with Saul. He didn't really like this very much. And so he did the only logical thing, which was to kill David, uh, I guess, which sent David on the run. And we know this before. So let me get a little more specific. Now, this in and of itself, David having to run from King Saul is not so great. Uh, It's pretty stressful. It's definitely not good. So you can see why he's stressed out and why he's calling out to God. Because Saul's just sin and pride... um, and lust for power, it was, it just made him turn on David for nothing more than pride, I guess. But it turns out to be so much worse than that. Uh, David went to, while he was running, a priest called Ahimelech. He, was, he ran to him for supplies. This is in another village far away. Uh, when he gets there, he decides not to tell the priest what he's doing. He lies. He tells Ahimelech, I'm here on a mission. I have a message. Uh, this is for King Saul. I need as many supplies as you can give me, and I need weapons. So he is deceitful. Maybe not a big thing at first. Um, the priest gives it to him. He knows David. Um, he knows David is a man of God. So David leaves and continues to flee. And as you can probably guess, Saul tracks David to this village, and he finds this priest, Ahimelech, and he corners him up and he starts questioning, questioning him. And he wants to know, why are you aiding my enemy? Why are you aiding David? And the priest spends half of a chapter trying to explain to him that this is a man of God and I didn't know and all this other stuff. And Saul kills him and kills his entire family. Then he turns around and kills all other 85 priests in that village, puts them all to the sword. And only when he's done with that does he send out his soldiers to kill the rest of the village, even down to, the the Bible says, even down to the donkey and the sheep. Wipe it all out. And David played a part in that because he lied. So now when you read this in verse 2, everyone utters lies to his neighbor. It starts to hit a little heavier, for David at least especially. Gives a whole new meaning to the psalm and how it opens up. So let me read 1 through 4 again. Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone. For the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor, and with flattering lips and a double heart they speak. 
May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts. Those who say, with our tongue we will prevail, our lips are with us. Who is master over us? So you can see it's not just the sin of the world around David that's shaking him up so much. It's his own sin too. He played a part in this. Could you imagine that your actions, at least in some way, directly lead to an entire village of people being killed? That's heavy. So it's David's own sin, and it's really just too much. In other words, he's overwhelmed. It's not even just David. That's what's cool about this Bible. It is so clear to us. This happens on multiple occasions. You can see it, too, in Jeremiah. Um, You don't have to turn there, but just one verse out of Jeremiah 8, um, one of the prophets, Jeremiah. Chapter 8, verse 5. Why, then, has this people turned away in perpetual backsliding? They hold fast to deceit, and they refuse to return. I point out Jeremiah specifically because both he and David are having uh, this same issue But for us, as we read this, they're bringing the heat because they're trying to tell you something. They're trying to check you on something. You can't just lackadaisically read through Psalm 12 or even Jeremiah 8 and just be like, man, people are terrible. They're just awful. This is a terrible world. I wish more people believed what I do. I wish that people thought the way I did and everyone wasn't so bad. I wish everyone was morally upright like me. So I'm here to beg you guys to please don't miss what's actually happening here. David and Jeremiah are not just stressed out because of their sin and the, or even just because of other people's sin. They weren't just upset. They were wrecked. When you hear these words that David is saying in Psalms, and when you hear Jeremiah speak in chapter 8, if we were to read more, they were wrecked by people who don't know Jesus. Completely destroyed. Completely overwhelmed, to stick with our keyword, with grief. By the complete just absence of God's creation worshiping their creator. It was not happening. David says, Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone. His heart is broken for the lost and for his own sin. Ask yourself where your heart is for sin. One verse into Psalms 12, David's checking you as he checked himself. Where is your heart for the sin of this world? Where is your heart for the people who don't know your king that you know so well, that you know has saved you? Where is your heart for the people who don't care? For people who are just walking around in a bubble of hatred as God sees it towards our king. And that bubble is so thick they can't even see where they're going and yet they're proud and they'll tell anyone and everyone who will listen how far they have come on their own. It's like a badge of honor in America right now. Look what I did. Richard Dawkins, man, that guy drives me insane. He calls, along with many other people, he calls God and any kind of God that humans come up with an imaginary friend and that really hurts it hurts me to say that my entire life has been built around what you are calling to be this imaginary friend y'all there are people out there in this world who think that way they laugh at people who believe in Jesus or any other God because it's this imaginary friend that we've invented up because this life is just so hard 
Where's your heart for people who think like that and feel that? If you're a Christian, then you're supposed to get this. You're supposed to get what's going on. You're supposed to know that you are separated from the wrath of God against that sin. You are separated from it because of the overwhelming love of Jesus who took that world's sin that was so vile that God could not even look at it. And he took it on himself. He exchanged it for you. You are free because of him. Period. You are redeemed. You are welcomed into his presence. We get to spend an eternity with God because of what he did for us. So you need to think really hard about what it must be like to not have that redemption. It tore David to pieces. And the fact that people were just walking around so openly in sin, it broke him. And I think that God is trying to tell you that it breaks his heart too, which means it should break your heart as well. And we can see what David did here. He prayed for them. I'm not asking you, and and I don't think God is asking us to start smacking people upside the head with the biggest Bible that we can find. He's asking you to mourn for these people, to pray for them, to actually care enough about other people that you want them to know your Jesus. If it's the most important thing in your life, you should be breaking down their doors to tell them about this God. And it broke Jeremiah's heart too. It's the same thing. Later on in chapter 8, verse 21, he wrote this. This is so cool to hear. I am broken by the brokenness of my dear people. I mourn. Horror has taken hold of me. And if you think about it, I mourn, it literally means I am dark or black, basically. It's the color of mourning, attire. Those were the words that Jeremiah chose when he saw, when he looked around as a prophet, the sin of the world. Jeremiah spent his entirety as a prophet with pretty much no results. And he held fast because he saw the brokenness of people around him. Uh, I kept thinking about how I'm a parent. God gave me the privilege to be a parent. He put two beautiful kids, two beautiful daughters, into into the life of my wife and I. And, um, man, those girls, short of only my God and my wife, they're the most important thing that I have. And if you have kids, you know what it's like when they're sick. It breaks your heart. I mean, it absolutely wrecks you, right? When they're sick, man, a little baby shivering with a fever, that is so rough to think about. But when I watch Nora, my three-year-old, snatch a toy from Millie, my one-year-old, when she wasn't even wanting to play with it before Millie had it. You guys know where I'm going with this, right? I mean, yeah, she's three, so I'm not, I'm not like condemning my child who's a three-year-old, but I'm just saying that little action right there, what she decided to do, that's selfishness coming out in her. And again, I get it. She's only three. So I'm not like going to throw her out on the street yet, but that little bit of selfishness, <laughs> that little bit of sin right there, that's important because what about when she's 15, Nora, and she starts looking to boys for her self-assurance instead of God or her father? I mean, what am I going to do then? What if, uh, what if Millie leaves for college and she comes back convinced that there is no God and that I brainwashed her, that my wife and I spent 18 years brainwashing her? What if... She comes back and confronts us with that. What am, what am I going to do? That would break my soul. And so it's absolutely no different. Because when my kids are sick or when they're sinning, 
it would wreck me, right? It would even physically put me in pain. And in Psalm 12, David is looking out at the people of Israel as his children. Jeremiah is doing the same in chapter 8. And they are hurting because their kids, their fellow believers, they're just, they're just missing it, man. They're completely missing it. <clears throat> the best example of all of this occurred to me late in the planning of this sermon, and it's Jesus himself. Do you remember what he did when he was at the Garden of Gethsemane and he was praying? All the sin that he knew he was about to take on, it literally caused him to physically sweat blood. I didn't know this until I looked it up. We actually get our English word excruciating, which is a great word to describe sweating blood, if, I don't, if you don't mind me saying. It actually comes from the events of Calvary. That word comes from out of the cross, excruciating does. Because apparently whoever came up with that word could think of nothing more excruciating than Jesus praying to his God, sweating blood. Out of the cross, the emotions ran deep. His heart, Jesus' heart, your Savior, his heart was excruciatingly broken because the people that he loved were running headlong into destruction and he was going to have to deal with it for you. How often does your heart break for the lost? Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone, for the faithful have vanished from among the children of men. That hit me this week. I just don't know that I walk around and I see people and I realize, what if they don't know my my king? That hurts. Uh, just to continue on with a little bit of etymology here, because I love studying the history of words and stuff. Excruciating was really cool to find out. So it was even cooler to find out that the Hebrew word, which I know nothing about, so thank God for Google, uh, the Hebrew word for save, as in save, O Lord, like David says at the beginning, the Hebrew word for save comes from the root word yasha, which I know I'm pronouncing wrong, but just go with it here, yasha, which just so happens to be where the name of our Savior Jesus is derived, Yeshua. It means Savior. That's cool to me, man. That is so cool to me. Three great men, Jeremiah, David, and Psalm here, and even Jesus, our King, in this Bible, are trying to show you just how great your Savior is. So if you claim to give Him all the glory, how can you just stand by and watch people live in sin and not cry out to God? I've mentioned this quote before, and I know Brooks has too. Spurgeon famously said, If sinners... Be damned. At least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped around their knees, imploring them to stay. And if hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions, and let not one go unwarned or unprayed for. I did go to town yesterday, and I mean, this, you know, the great massive city of Alma. I went to town and I saw 15 people. And I counted because I, I've just I've, I've been thinking about this. It's been affecting me, and so I counted. Uh, I went to the parts store and I saw 15 people, 15 human beings in total. Do you know, statistically speaking, only about four or maybe five of those 15 people actually attend a church on a Sunday morning. And you guys know better than most that just going to church doesn't mean anything for your actual spirituality, your actual belief in Jesus. Those are really scary statistics. 
y'all, what if all 15 of those people that I saw yesterday, what if they don't know Jesus? What if they are going to spend an eternity without him? That's 15 human beings created by God to live their short lives working against him, and they will spend an eternity without him. That's scary, and it made it a little more real to me. Um, and I had to spend a lot of time in prayer. Like I said, I, this is not a message to ask you to start smacking people upside the head with the Bible. Uh, I always tell the story about when I was in Valdosta. I had, I, I'm Jordan, by the way. I don't know if you recognize me because I have no hair anymore, but I used to have really long hair. And in Valdosta, I walked by the quad, and there was this guy, classic like sandwich board wearer, you know, uh, you are condemned to hell and all this other stuff on, on the board. And he told me when I walked by the class one day that I was going to hell because I had long hair as a man. That's not what I'm trying to ask you to do. So please, that has stuck with me for a long time. That man is messing people up big time. This is not about asking you to just um, aggressively turn people off from our king. It's asking you to pray for them. To think twice when, when you're not sure if you want to say something to your friend who's backsliding, to think twice about it. It could yield embarrassment for you if that's what you're afraid of. It could. It could yield a broken friendship for you if that's what you're worried about. It might. But we serve a mighty God who has done everything for you. And so when I look at my friend who I see slipping or my kid and I'm tired and don't want to address their sin or my sin, and I don't want to address it. I think what we're trying to see here is you can't let that happen. This God is too important for us. Psalms 12 has been a gut check so far. At least it was for me. So it's calling us out for not, not basically putting our faith in practice um, in a world that is full of sin. But like I said just a second ago, man, we serve a mighty God. And if you ever doubt that, Look no further than the other half of Psalms 12. <clears throat> so if you will pick up with me and see God's response to David's pleas in this lament. God's response starting in verse 5. Because the poor are plundered and because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground and purified seven times. You, O Lord, will keep them, and you will guard us from this generation forever. Man, that is so encouraging. God is saying to David, uh, yeah, I, I get it, man. I see this evil. I see these unclean lips, these double hearts, and in response to your prayers, I will arise. I will step up, and I will protect you. What a mighty God we serve to see that when we are overwhelmed by sin and shame of our own and of other people, that God promises. He doesn't say, I'll think about it. He says, I will arise and protect you. I love that he uses the word safety in verse, uh, what is that, 5? I will place him in the safety for which he longs. That is so encouraging to me as a Christian who struggles with sin on a daily basis and who struggles because my friends and my family, or I have friends and family who don't know Jesus. That is incredibly encouraging to me, that he will arise. It gets even cooler when you look more closely. The Hebrew word translated in safety in verse 5, it's actually the noun form of the verb save. 
from verse 1. When David, if you don't get that, when David is saying save, uh, in, or when, uh, when, the, when David is saying the word safety in verse 5, it's pointing to a direct answer to his petition in verse 1, to save me, O Lord. That's even cooler, in my opinion. So when the circumstances around you are taking over and you just completely feel overwhelmed, I think you should take comfort in the fact that God is your place of safety. That's what he was showing me, that he is my rock. He is my absolute promised Savior. Look no further than verse 6. The words of the Lord are pure words, like a silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. You, O Lord, will keep them, and you will guard us from this generation forever. So God's words, a.k.a. the Bible for us, are pure and refined, like silver in a furnace, purified seven times. He says that he will keep them. They are guaranteed. And nothing in this world, on this side of heaven, is guaranteed other than that. Compare the purity of the words of our God in verse 6 to the impurity of the words of man, as if we even need to point that out in verse 2 through 4 from the first half of the song. So backtrack to 2. Everyone, this is man, everyone lies, utters lies to his neighbor with flattering lips and a double heart. May the Lord cut off those lips, the tongue that makes great boasts. Those who say with our tongue we will prevail, our lips are with us. Who is master over us? You can't place any confidence in the idle talks of man. You cannot rely upon the promises of proud people who with their flattering lips and double hearts they speak. There's a good reason, though, for unwavering confidence in the words of our God. If you were a, uh, a fighter, I get to get a little bit nerdy with you here, or a warrior back in the day, your main line of defense, um, if you could actually afford it, would be a sword. The thing about sword steel is that it kind of works a lot better <clears throat> if it doesn't, you know, break in the middle of a battle or shatter when you strike somebody's shield. I mean, I've never actually been in one. I just kind of feel like that's how it works. Um, yeah, we'll go with that anyways. So it's better for your own general safety when your sword doesn't shatter two minutes into a fight that your life depends on. So chemically speaking, again, not to get too nerdy on you, but the best way to keep steel from breaking is to make it perfectly pure, chemically speaking. The structure has to be pure. It's really, really important. Got to have clean steel all the way throughout. Um, they would have forged their, their swords and their daggers and spears and everything else. They would have forged them in coal fires. And coal has a ton of impurities in it, so when you're forging them in this fire, that those impurities from the coal can work their way into the steel if you don't know what you're doing. And it makes the structure brittle, at least leans it or gives it the tendency to be brittle and so you know you're in the battle and you swing your sword and it cleaves into the edge of somebody's shield and then you try to pull it back out and all they do is twist it and it snaps in two because you've got in, you know unclean steel purity is incredibly important um, it, it, your life depends on it um, if my life depends on my weapon being pure in other words the word of God and I believe that it does, then I think it's wise for me to pick the one that is pure and clean. And nothing, says Psalms 12, is more pure than the word of the Lord. 
Verse 6, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. Your place of safety is in the word of the Lord. The Bible is everything to us as believers in Christ. So your challenge number two today is to ask yourself, are you leaning on God's pure, refined, and guaranteed word, his precious word, or do you find yourself turning to brittle steel, to man's brittle steel? Look at it through the lens of simple math. Um, If you spend, let's say, two-thirds of your day awake, um, you're in 24 hours of your day awake. That means you've got roughly 18 hours of, of waking, uh, waking hours in your life, at least on the upper end, every single day. Most of those are probably spent around sinners, right? Man, speaking with unclean lips and with double hearts. So compare that to the number of hours that you spend in God's Word. And that starts to, at least for me, check me a little bit. I'm not saying that you should hide in a a closet and never come out and never speak with anybody because, guys, we know that not to be true. Jesus himself spent uh, all of his time, most all of his time, among the people, among sinners, showing them his love. So don't misunderstand me. I'm not asking you. I guess I'm not saying that just because your pie chart is massively uh, uh, overwhelmed in one side, it's not that you're doing something wrong. I think what I'm trying to say here is the importance of the Word of God, which is already shown to us to be so pure and perfect. And when you compare that to man's Word, it means you should take that time and prioritize it over everything else. Everything else. This Word is incredibly powerful, and God's words within are incredibly powerful. So thinking that Jesus, uh, or, or sorry, so believing in Jesus and having access to His Word but never even opening it, save for Sunday mornings, I think that's a grave mistake, and there's really no way around that. You should, as a Christian, long to know more about your Savior, and this is where you find it. This is where it's at. When you're praying to God and you're asking Him for help, He's given you the answers, and they're here in this Bible. Any storm, guys, no matter how overwhelming, if death is, is staring you down in the face, or death of somebody that you love, or sin of somebody that you love, or yourself, any situation, any storm, it's here. And you should thirst for every bit of God's amazing qualities found inside of these pages to help you with that. His, his love, His mercy, His strength, His power, His holiness, His compassion for you. Simply put, being a Christian and not prioritizing God's perfect and pure word is a really scary place to be. So that's the second challenge, at least as I saw it. So finally, if you look at me with the, at the last verse, we get kind of a plot twist. Because in verse 8, things take a turn backwards, it kind of seems. So I thought we were going to have a happy ending, but apparently not. So verse 8, on every side the wicked prowl, as vileness is exalted among the children of man. That was not quite the ending that I had expected when I was reading through this. It it turned somber again. Um, He's ended this whole thing in a a pretty somber fashion. In Charles Spurgeon's commentary, he said, here we return to, as he described it, the fount of bitterness, which first made the psalmist run to the wells of salvation in the first place, namely 
the prevalence of wickedness. So in other words, the overwhelming circumstance that brought David to God in prayer in the first place, that grieved his heart so much at the beginning of this prayer, they haven't changed. They're still here and the trouble still exists. The consequences of sin are still there and it will not go away this side of heaven. The world is full of people who, by their own actions, show hatred towards God. And what's worse is that they are often the ones who are commended for it by the people. By me, sometimes. And maybe even by you. And they're praised by the world. So even the few Christians who, who are struggling and fighting daily with their own sin, they still struggle with this. It won't go away, sadly. Um, David, again, is a great example of this, who survived his fight with Saul, spoiler alert, after all this goes on, and, and he goes on to become a great king and all I have to say is Bathsheba to get you to understand that it doesn't go away for him the sin he's right back in it several years down the road he's right back in it but this time in verse 8 what has changed at the end of this psalm is David's outlook he has been brought back to the word of God he's been reminded that he has safety in it he has a place of safety where he can take refuge as well. And that is incredibly powerful. Because if I have to face this world and I know that it's hard and I know that it's difficult and I'm worried about so many things and on top of that I'm worried about the really important things like the salvation of my best friend and my family. When I have to deal with those things, it gives me great comfort to know that God is my safety. So two things. Just to recap this really quick. Your heart has to break for those who don't know God. Busyness can take away your compassion for others. Don't let it. Don't let that happen. That means an eternity without Him. So do not let that happen, please. And secondly, your safety from this world is found in Him and His Word, which, as David says, is pure and perfect. He will not fail us. And he tells us that he will arise and he will place you in the safety for whatever is overwhelming you. It may not happen instantly. It's not going to be perfectly as you want it to be sometimes, but it will happen. Please don't, um, like I'm saying, please don't mishear and think that you can pray when times get hard and God will save you and then you can go back right back to the way things were. It's not how this works. I'm not, God doesn't guarantee instant you know, satisfaction in that regard, but he's promising us that he is always listening and he is always faithful. His ear is always open and he will arise and he will protect you. This is incredibly important, guys. It is so important to keep yourself near to God through his word and through prayer just as David did in Psalms 12. This is why we take time to pray and we study his word together. This is why I'm really excited about the men's Bible study on Tuesday mornings, even if it's at 6 a.m. I'll try to remember everything that we say in my half-awakened you know, uh, status. It's so important, though. I mean, this is why every chance we get, we put scripture on the screen, even in between the verses and songs. Did you know that sometimes we, we break 
between verse and other verse, and we play just a little bit longer so that we can have a good Bible verse up there and give you time to read it. It's important. It's really important. I mean, every chance we get here, we want to pray and we want to read God's Word. And I think that that should reflect in your own life away from this church also. Every chance that you get. If God promises you safety in His Word, you have to take it. Let's pray. My God and King, I struggle. I deserve nothing because I repeatedly fail, Father. But not only do you give your Son on my behalf for my sin, something I definitely don't deserve, you give me your Word and you guarantee it. You guarantee that it is perfect and it's pure. What did we deserve to get you, Father? Thank you so much for what you've done for me personally and what you've done for this church. Thank you for your word. Continually push me, God, in that direction. Do not let me stray from your words, Father. And continue to break my heart for the lost, for my sin and for the sin of others in this world, God. I know I can't save them, and I know it's not my job to. But God, I want to cry out to you on their behalf. I want them to know you as I do, Father. And so I thank you again for everything that you've done for me and everything that you've done for this world, God, for, for us. There's no one like you, Father. In your holy name we pray. Amen.